For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Baby. And today we're going to talk about pregnancy, parenthood, and activism. So we're going to talk a little bit about how pregnancy and parenthood can spark the desire to see change and create activism. For many people, they're not even aware of the culture of birth in our country until actually pregnant. And for many, they become pretty dissatisfied with how women are being treated and start to look at ways to create change. So for this conversation, we have Jeannie Faulkner. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Jean Faulkner is a writer, podcaster, registered nurse, speaker, mother, and maternal health advocate. After almost 20 years as working as a labor and delivery nurse, Jean branched into writing for magazines, newspapers, and websites about topics ranging from asthma to Zen meditation, with a heavy focus on women's health, politics, parenting, and feminism. She's the author of two books, The Completed Illustrated Birthing Companion and Common Sense Pregnancy, which inspired her podcast, Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting. She also writes and hosts two podcasts for CARE, the Global Humanitarian Organization, and she's co-founded Civics for Cynics workshops that raise advocates from the ground up. Jean lives in Oregon with her family. Hi, Jeannie. Thank you so much for coming out to my podcast. Hi, Deb. How are you? I'm doing so well. So it's really fun to kind of turn the tables. So I was on your podcast, which was super fun to be a guest. And now I love that you're joining me on mine. Thank you so much. So it's an interesting topic. I'm glad when we talked about what you should talk about, you brought this up because I see this so much that a lot of people, they're not even aware of what's happening until they're in it. So I'm really excited. So before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about how you went from an L&D nurse to foreign assistance lobbying and podcasting, because that's quite a journey. It is. I I thought so too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, the short story is that, uh, as you mentioned, I was a labor and delivery nurse uh, for almost 20 years. And I worked in you know, hospitals in Los Angeles and Portland, Oregon, you know, urban settings, and literally was at the bedside for thousands of births. And, you know, over a long enough time span that I was kind of able to watch the the birth industry, um, you know, which is all the people and processes and administrative, you know, the, all of the everything that goes into how we deliver babies in this country. 
So I was, I was able to watch kind of some ebb and flow of good policies, bad policies, extreme policies, not so extreme policies. And over the years, it really changed. And it it got to be this point where the biggest part of my job was not really taking care of the patient, but taking care of the computer and making sure that I documented in ways that really protected the hospital and the insurance policies. And it was frustrating. And at the same time, you know, we were seeing more and more women having more and more interventions that they, you know, probably didn't need. Um, but they didn't know that, and they were just willingly accepting all kinds of, you know, things going on that led them into some scary situations and, in my opinion, really increased the C-section rate. And I think that that's an opinion that's shared across the board. About the same time, <clears throat> I don't know, 15, 15 years or so ago, I started writing a little bit and just doing magazine work and op-eds for newspapers and that kind of thing. And um, kind of had this feeling like I wanted to do more than write about how to pack your, your kid's lunch. And it turned out I got this opportunity about that time to write for Fit Pregnancy magazine. And I uh, pitched an a advice column to them called Ask the Labor Nurse and ended up writing that for about eight years. And one day when I was still working at the hospital and still writing you know, doing both jobs. I was at home and I had um, just come home from the hospital where I'd been in the operating room with a woman who was hemorrhaging. She was bleeding to death and we'd been hanging blood and doing everything we could to save her. And we did. And the baby was fine too. But I came home and, and before I could crash, um, I had to do emails. And I turn the TV on across the room and I'm plunking away and I look up at one point and a woman that I recognized was talking about how she had gone to Peru to witness how CARE, the humanitarian organization, had reduced maternal mortality in that country by 75% in five years. And I was transfixed. It was Christy Turlington, the model. Um, and, you know, I had just come out of the operating room where we, I was you know, working with a woman who was trying to die. And the story about what went on in Peru, which was a, a country where mothers died in childbirth kind of a lot, uh, it, it just really transfixed me. And I sent an email to CARE right then and there and said, hey, I'm a nurse and I'm a journalist. What could I do to help? And they got right back to me and they said, well, if you can get your magazine to, you know, assign this to you, we'll take you to Peru. We'll show you what, what we showed Christy Turlington, which was, you know, a range of health facilities and um, health ministry officials and several different um, maternal health sites. We'll show you what we did. We'll tell you how we did it. Um, and so I pitched it to my magazine and they said, yeah, we'll do it. And they sent me to Peru, sure enough. And while I was there, I had my very first real advocacy aha moment. And I didn't even know that I was doing it. Um, as part of this learning tour that I was on, I had an opportunity to speak with the vice president of Ayacucho, which is a state in Peru. And we had a, a meeting, short meeting, where we talked about 
my magazine and my work and what I had learned on this learning tour with care and what I had seen at a variety of health facilities. And then we went on about our day. The next day I was told that because of that conversation, the vice president had decided that he was going to fund maternal health programs out of the human rights budget instead of the women's health budget because he knew that the human rights budget received funding more often. And Care let me know that that was kind of a big win. And I realized at that point that all I had done was had a little conversation. But he thought, oh, there's this American writer here. Maybe this is pretty important. He looked into it further and he signed off on the bill. And it was like, are you kidding me? That's all it took? Having a conversation? So I was kind of hooked. And when I got back from Peru um, and wrote the article, Care invited me to do some training with them about how to be an effective advocate. And essentially, they um, trained me and there are thousands of us that they have trained and given the opportunity to, to learn how to hold a meeting on Capitol Hill with our members of Congress and talk about why foreign assistance is important to us. And so that was, that was the big leap. You know, it went from a magazine assignment article to Peru to learning how to do advocacy. And from there, it's just grown and grown. And at this point in my career, um, I no longer work at the bedside doing labor and delivery nurse uh, work. And I no longer write for Fit Pregnancy Magazine. I primarily write for humanitarian organizations about advocacy and activism and um, gender, humanitarian work, that kind of thing. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. That's an amazing journey. And each of your roles were, was very important. The L&D nurse, uh, you know, the advocacy, the the writer, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and I think you really touched on something about the shift from caring for the mother and labor to the computer as a doula. I feel like I saw mm-hmm. that a lot. You know, mm-hmm. they, they'd come in, do what they have to do, and then immediately make sure that everything was logged. And I think that's a little bit of, there's a little bit of a misconception amongst people about what the role of the nurse is going to be. Many think they're going to come in and have support, you know, physical, emotional support, almost like a doula. And then are sometimes surprised that they're not getting that because the nurse has, it's not that they don't want to support the woman, but they have, they have to get the notes down. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not supposed to be the biggest priority of our job, um, but it is the biggest priority of our job. And it's, um, you know, ideally what we're 
supposed to do is be able to provide all of that physical and one-on-one and continuous support in addition to documenting everything on the computer. Um, but, you know, most of us can't split ourselves up that way. It's either we're focusing on the patient or we're focusing on the computer. And um, i tell you what, if you don't do your documentation correctly, <laughs> you're going to get it. Yeah. You're going to get it. <laughs> so I want to touch on what something else you said that was interesting. So for 20 years, you did L&D work. So, uh-huh. and you saw changes. What were some of the biggest changes, some that were helpful, some that later they're like, oh, that was kind of a mistake. Like, you know, there's times like, I remember with Cytotech that was used for <laughs> starting up inductions and like, oh, can't do that, you know, with a VBAC. Did you, was there anything noticeable to you that in your span, you saw people say, oh, we should not have gone that way. And the things that were changing in a positive way? Yeah. I, yeah. I think we could use um, elective inductions as a really good example. Like in the I, you know, I want to say in the early 90s, I worked at a hospital that did um, very few elective inductions. And uh, by elective inductions, for listeners who aren't quite clear, that just means that you're signing up for an induction without a very clear medical indication. You know, maybe it's a convenient date. Maybe your partner has to be deployed. Maybe you're sick and tired of being pregnant. You know, whatever reason. But it's not that you need a medical induction because your blood pressure is skyrocketing or your baby isn't growing or something like that. So, um, you know, we, I worked at a hospital that really prided itself with its low C-section rate and its low induction rate, really remarkably low. All of a sudden there was this big shift in the number of inductions that we were doing and we ratcheted it way up. We were doing inductions for all kinds of reasons and it was just considered you know, just standard. It was just normal. It was fine. And in fact, I even had a couple of those inductions myself. Um, with my third and fourth babies and not because I needed them medically, but one, um, I wanted an induction because I had two other kids and I could not figure out how to manage the childcare without getting somebody coordinated. And another one was because I wasn't feeling well and I had kind of a, a hint that I needed to get this child out. Um, but I got really lucky. They lent, yeah, they went towards vaginal births. I didn't have any complications, but what we saw during those years of doing more and more and more elective inductions was that first time moms and, and many moms that had had other children, um, these inductions were leading them to have, you know, kind of dysfunctional labors. Their bodies weren't really ready for, you know, dilating and delivering the baby yet. And so their labor would stall and they'd end up in the operating room with a C-section. And then over time, over many years, we started recognizing that all of these inductions were leading to way more C-sections. All of these C-sections were leading to way more complications in mothers, including um, some pretty serious maternal mortality uh, rates. We were, the United States became one of only, I want to say like eight countries in the entire world whose maternal mortality rate was climbing. And so, you know, about, I don't know, half a dozen years or so ago, hospitals started really looking at this. And now they're shifting back to a way more conservative use of inductions because they recognize that, you know, 
That's a great example. Yeah. That's a great example. So as an advocate and having been in the birth world for so long, I'd love your opinion on what do you think of the current state of maternal health care? It sounds like things are shifting a bit now that we're starting not to overuse induction so much. The mortality rate's starting to drop a little. What Mm -hmm. are your thoughts on, on our current state? Well, I think that that's a move in the right direction. You know, um, I think that we recognized that, you know, messing with mother nature too much when it's not indicated, uh, it doesn't pan out in every circumstance is the best thing for moms. Um, I think also though, that we haven't dealt with some of the really, really big issues that cause women problems in America. And, you know, one of those issues is that our model of healthcare really is intervention oriented. And, you know, we have kind of modeled our entire system of prenatal care around looking at women in terms of their risk values for complications they they or their baby might develop. We don't look at them as women who are pretty healthy, but let's see if we can support them to be healthier. We look at them as women who might get into trouble or women whose babies might get into trouble. And we kind of, we do our entire prenatal care system that way. We're, you know, checking for problems every single step of the way. Another model of care, which is generally considered the midwifery model of care, is that women are looked at more holistically and their prenatal care is delivered that way. Lots more support for being a healthy woman. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the... I I like those two thoughts. I always think about the two different models. And the problem that's happening is that many people don't go into the midwifery model, even with a, it doesn't have to be a bit of midwife. I know some care, some OBs that practice in the midwifery way, which is fantastic. Um, But those that do follow the more traditional medical model, it creates such fear in, in the women. And then they start not to trust their bodies. Yeah. And so, and it just tumbles down of, oh, I, I guess I shouldn't do this. I guess I'm, I'm not capable of doing this. The doctor knows best. And it can really just give, let women give up their power and their autonomy mm-hmm. because they feel that they don't have the knowledge. And it's, I find that really, really sad. And speaking of that power and autonomy, <laughs> that's one of the other things that I think that um, is is starting to shift, but is maybe shifting too slowly, mm-hmm. is that so many women get into their healthcare relationships, whether it's with their family practice doctor or their obstetrician or even their midwife. And they look at that relationship dynamic as the healthcare provider is in charge of me. They will tell me what to do and I will do it. They're the ones in charge. And that is not true. <laughs> Every single choice that you make is your choice as a patient. The person who's in charge of this relationship is the patient. The patient hires the provider to provide information and services, um, but the choices and decisions are ultimately up to the patient. And the patient doesn't necessarily recognize that. Absolutely. They don't. Yeah. They yeah. don't realize they've hired this person. It's a, right. it's a pay-for-service. So what role do you think feminism plays in changing maternal health care in the U.S.? You know, it's so interesting to me. A lot of women don't actually consider themselves feminists or don't recognize that feminism has a role to play in their life until they become mothers. 
Um, or even sometimes until they step into their first prenatal appointment and all of a sudden the table shifts. It's no longer about them and their life and their choices. It's about their baby. And their prenatal care is going to be designed around their baby, which is, don't get me wrong, I am all about having a healthy baby. But instead of focusing prenatal care and the decisions and choices that a mother makes primarily around the mom and her health, we're looking at the baby. And what that ends up doing is it displaces the mother. She's kind of the vessel. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about the baby. And sometimes, you know, women are like, okay, that's totally fine. Um, But a lot of women get in there and go, well, wait, 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 what about me? For some women, it's, you know, that their kind of feminist aha moment comes in something really small, like having to step on the scale every time they go in Uh um, and having some sort of judgment laid down on their weight gain. Oh, you did great. Or, oh, you better watch it. Uh So all of a sudden their body is being criticized on a regular basis. Or maybe it's that they're told that they really have to have all of these certain tests, but they don't necessarily feel good about it. And then, you know, when they push back a little bit, their provider will say, well, you want a healthy baby, don't you? Well, yeah, but what about me? For some people, it's really subtle like that. For other people, the moment comes when, you know, they've had the baby, they made it through okay, they're in their postpartum period, um, but now they have to make these really god-awful work-life decisions, childcare decisions, going back to work decisions, breastfeeding decisions, and our society is not built to support women in that way. And this also makes me think a lot about something I see women struggle with is that the attention is often on the mom's health, but not necessarily the mom's well-being until Mm -hmm. baby comes. And then it's really all about the baby and the mom's left who had just had a baby and her body Mm -hmm. went through a huge transformation. And Mm -hmm. she's kind of, you know, often like the, the mindset of, oh, you're fine. It's kind of off in the corner instead of like, how are you? You, how's your body? How are you emotionally? Mm-hmm. And it can, and that can lead to higher incidence of postpartum depression and anxiety because we're not taking care of the mother. Right. I was talking to a young woman recently who said that the thing that she noticed um, was that her provider called her by her name until the baby had passed. And then did she call her mommy? Yeah. Yeah. And then she became mom or mommy. She was, and then, you know, it, and we all go through that shift of identity. Yeah. Become a parent that we go from being who we are ourselves to being someone's mother. Um, but it was that abrupt. It was that abrupt. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard. In fact, I was reading an article recently, I think it was in the British Journal of Medicine about the way they can, certain language they can use. And they're no longer allowed to say like, um, they're no longer allowed to refer to the woman as my patient. They actually have to use her name, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a nice shift. But I know that family, like I love being a mom and I love when my kids call me mommy. Like there's something sweet, but what drives me crazy is when other people do like my daughter's preschool teacher. And I get it. There's 29 kids in her class. So she doesn't know us all, but I'm always referred to as mommy. Like, I know it. I know it. I'm not your mommy. I'm an adult in your life. Let's call each other names. Yeah, you can remember 29 names. I I get it. I mean, I, 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 yeah, 
I'm a person. I'm a person. I'm a mom. That's one of my hats, but I'm not just mommy. All right. So let me get back a little to the idea of kind of um, the feminism. And what are you seeing are some of the obstacles that parents are facing when they're trying to find change? Well, I think that our, you know, it, we're structured in a certain way. And I, I think really probably the most obvious obstacle um, that new parents face that really reflects on feminism is the back to school or back to work mm-hmm. scramble, as I call it, because we don't provide any kind of financial support for the postpartum period. We don't have maternity leave or paternity leave that is guaranteed paid. Some women do through their companies. Um, some states provide disability. I think that California does. Um, but in the majority of states and in the majority of families, you are financially on your own. And that's a big obstacle. You go and you decide, okay, I'm going back to work. But then you have to, um, you know, you, you got to find affordable child care. Or you have to, you know, it's just that. That is it. That's the That's the biggest window window into how we don't support women to thrive. Yeah. I mean, I don't think most people until they're really in it, understanding that childcare thing. You know, I remember my sister-in-law being like, so how are you guys financial? I'm like, we're fine. And then all of a sudden I noticed we're paying for a nanny because I need to go back to work. And if I didn't go back right. to work, that would de- be, and then, and then there's preschool and it's just the, we don't get support. We don't get state support. Right. It's really, I think it's something most people don't really clue into until they're facing it. Like we have one more year of tuition and I'm like, our lives will change after yeah. that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so keeping in the theme of feminism and activism, do you see changes moving into other parts of parents' life once they do have their baby, once they do go through pregnancy? Um, yeah, I think that it shows up, you know, all along the line in raising your children. And, you know, you, you see, you see these areas where women are funneled into certain activities, whereas men are funneled into others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just take, for example, you know, you've got a child in school and you're going to volunteer in the classroom to provide specific, I mean, a lot of women, dads too, and I, I think we're seeing more of it, like hanging out in the classroom with their kids. And that's great. It's a wonderful time to be able to spend see your kid and as they're learning mm-hmm. and, you know, be of some sort of assistance. But what we also have is the situation where we have hundreds, probably thousands, maybe millions of women who are providing services to our school system for free. And, you know, many schools would say we can get by without our volunteer parents. Well, if that's the case, then why aren't women being paid for the services that they're providing to schools? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because women will volunteer. Men will too, but in that same context, the men are going to be doing other things. They're going to be doing, you know, like PTA roles or fundraising roles or, you know, other things because they're not taking time out of their work day unpaid to spend at their kid's school. Does that make sense to it you? It absolutely does. Because I yeah. think about, like, we get a list of signing up for lunch moms, which I try to shoot for once or twice a year. And yeah. I don't see too many men there. And, yeah, I, and, it, and it does kind of kill me because I do work from home a few days a week. But when my son asks me to do it, it's mm-hmm. really hard to take the time out of work. You know, yes. I feel like sometimes our time as, as women aren't necessarily valued the same. 
Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying that women shouldn't volunteer at kids' schools. I spent hours and hours and hours with all of my kids doing that. But it's something that you notice as Mm -hmm. you're going along, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, I want to swing back a little bit to something we touched on um, earlier about the two different methodology or thoughts about like the midwifery model and the medical model. And we started uh-huh. talking a little bit about fear. So this kind of jumped in my mind. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between fear-based pregnancy and a well-based pregnancy? Yeah. So, you know, we did talk about this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But let's expand. <laughs> yeah. With a, with a fear-based pregnancy it is this model of care where you are focusing on the risks and problems that could come up. Let's say, you know, let's, let's talk about the biggies. You know, mm-hmm. You're concerned about um, risks for baby, maybe cardiac risks for mom, maybe risks for gestational diabetes, which will then affect baby. Um, you know, we're doing lots and lots and lots of testing to make sure that there's nothing wrong with mom. And, we're telling her that she needs to avoid this long laundry list of foods and, and things so that we don't do anything to baby. We're, we're putting that fear in her that something that she does or something about her is um, going to be a problem. It's a little bomb that might explode. So we're going to keep looking for that bomb through tests and treatments and interventions. Lots and lots of just-in-case interventions. When you have a well-based pregnancy you're looking at mom not as, you know, a potential bomb that's going to go off or a potential disease or medical condition that's going to crop up. You're looking at her as a normal, healthy person who's capable of having a healthy baby. Now, that doesn't mean you ignore warning signs, but maybe you don't make the entire focus of prenatal care about potential bombs that might go off, but probably don't in most situations. So So instead, you spend your prenatal time talking about ways to be well. And, you know, both as a bedside nurse who did lots and lots of teaching and also as a health writer, you know, we would always finish up our teaching moment or the article that I had written with the same basic wellness points like, you know, eat right, get plenty of rest, drink water, not soda, you know, stress reduction. With a well-based pregnancy, you're actually focusing on those issues. You're talking about what does eat right mean? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you mean water instead of soda? For a lot of people, they just don't get it. They mm-hmm. don't have that basic information yet. And a well-based pregnancy is you get the information you need to be your healthiest. So what would be some ways a parent that's a pregnant person who might be in more of a fear-based relationship with their care provider, do you have any suggestions for how they may start to say, ask for more information and say, no, I don't think I need this? Because it's not always available and easy, as you mentioned, oh, but it's you know, right. best for baby. What are you doing? How do we help yeah. them find their voice? I think it starts with you get give yourself as thorough an education as possible, which means for listeners, you know, read some books, read some magazine articles, take a look at a few of the, you you can go over to the American College of OBGYN's website and patients have access to standards of care. So if your provider is telling you that he or she wants you to go get some sort of test or treatment and you're really not sure about it, you can go to their website, look it up and get more information. Now say you still don't feel good about it. Like maybe it is some sort of screening exam that you just don't really feel like you want to do. 
um, but you're being pressured into it. You go to your provider and say simply that. I don't really feel like I want to do this, but I'm feeling pressured. You ask more questions. You get more answers. You keep talking. And then ultimately, you take responsibility for the choice yourself. You get to say, you know what, I'm not going to. Or you can say, yeah, that really makes sense. I feel better about that now. Let's do it. It's up to you. Do you the think the, the care provider gives that time? I feel like they're, the appointments are so quick. They really are, but take it. If you need answers to your questions, then you take that time. I would recommend that patients be really organized about it. Don't go in with 20 questions. Go in with two. Go in with three. Um, and if you feel like, hey, I just am not getting the information that I need, then ask your provider, how do you suggest that I deal with this? I don't feel like I'm getting what I need from you. And they may say, real honestly, I only have seven minutes with you. Let's book out another appointment for 15. And then make sure when you get that more time that you ask your most pertinent questions first. I love this because you're really giving the voice back to the to the woman who needs that voice right. as a mother because you know right. the mama bear has to come through you know so yeah. and I feel as we set, keep saying over and over it's so easy to fall into the role of you're the care provider you know best and I've had when I do childbirth ed I've had some care providers in class and they're like you know we've had years of training and we expect our our clients they don't call them clients I call them clients patients to respect that and to listen, and it can get a little confrontational. Yeah, I know. They have had those years of training, and I really respect it. Absolutely. And boy, oh boy, when you need you know, advanced medical care, I'm so grateful we live in a country where we can get it. But, you know, we live in a country where our labor and delivery units are, you know, they're built out, they're, they're intensive care units. You know, why are we putting the majority of healthy women in intensive care units? We don't need it. Yeah. Don't need it. So I I feel for doctors who feel like all of their training and expertise is being questioned. I, I feel for them that it makes them uncomfortable. And oh well. We feel uncomfortable too. Yes. Yeah. yeah I agree. We're all gonna be a little uncomfortable for a while. <laughs> yeah, until things shift. I love that. We're all and, and you know, it's yeah. something I teach in prenatals. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Not every moment is going to be yummy. Sometimes we have discomfort, and we we find our coping ways, coping mechanisms, yeah. which I'm still trying to teach my kids. We can cope yeah. with discomfort. All right, so before we wrap up, um, you've worked with so many new parents and expectant parents. Yeah. Are there any final tips you would like to offer? You know, the biggest tip that I offer parents is this. Raise the child that you have, not the one you thought you were going to have. Amen. <laughs> we, all, we all have this idea about, I mean, we all say it. Well, when I'm a mom, you know, my <laughs> kid's never going to do this and that, you know, or, you know, you, you have these ideas as to who you think your child is going to be. And then your child is going to teach you, oh, no, I'm this person. I have these issues. I have these talents. I have these gifts. Um, they're going to teach you who they are. I had... And- I had that moment and it was a surrender and it was something so small. I had thought coming from music background, I thought my son and I wanted him to play piano and I kept trying and trying. And what I realized, this was just a few nights ago, I was laying in bed thinking, why can't I get him to play the piano? He loves science. He loves it. We have all these science books for kids. We've been studying microbiology, some stuff I don't Mm -hmm. even know what I'm reading. And Mm -hmm. I actually had to tell myself, 
that's his talent. And who am I to push him in something that I want? I have to honor what he wants. And it was like, it was literally just a few nights ago. And I had that like, aha, he's, he's who he is. So I love that. That's your tip. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really glad that I knew, you know, like I, I have, um, three daughters, a son and a niece. And with the first child, you, I really thought that everything that she was had to do with me or my husband. And boy, that's a lot of pressure, (laughs) you know, thinking that, oh, she's crying because I did this or that. By the time you have your second kid, you realize, oh yeah, maybe not so much (laughs) because this kid is entirely different than that kid. Same parental recipe, same (laughs) habitat that they're being raised in, but she's real different than she is. And I'm glad that I knew that by the time I had my son, because my son is not an, you know, academically driven into robotics, chess club, microbiology kind of kid. Yeah. He's a skater boy, guitar player. See, that's what I would expect for myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I had to know that you raised the kid that was born to you, not the one that you thought you were going to get. Because if I tried to raise that skater boy guitar player as a microbiology chess club kid, he would have been miserable. Yeah. So would I. <laughs> yeah. Cause you had been fighting him the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a great tip. Oh, well, yeah. is there anything else you want to add about where people can find you, your books, multiple, um, <laughs> everything, anything else? Well, um, they can, Find me at my website, jeanfalkner.com. They can pick up my books everywhere books are sold. The most recent is called Common Sense Pregnancy. It's an excellent book. Uh, Really excellent. I like it too. And uh, then my podcast is Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting. And that's everywhere. iTunes and Apple Media and Stitcher. You can find right. me there. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending some time speaking with me and for my and to my community. Everything you said was just something I totally agreed with and spot on. So it was really it was fun. It's fun for me. Great. I hope it's fun for everyone else. Well, That's enjoy great. the rest of your day. Will do. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too. KTR. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flashenberg. Thanks for listening.